The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're very welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock. Now I know we've got lots of true crime fans uh, on the show. Certainly, whenever we recommend a true crime podcast, uh, a lot of people take us up on that recommendation. So I've no doubt lots of you will have seen the new Jeffrey Dahmer series on Netflix. Well, a woman who knows all about uh, Jeffrey Dahmer uh, in in all of its gory detail is Annie E. Schwartz. She was working as a crime reporter for the Milwaukee Journal back in 1991 when this story broke. She was central to the breaking of that story. For people who don't know who I'm talking about, I should say Jeffrey Dahmer was a US serial killer and sex offender and he murdered and dismembered 17 men and boys between 78 and 91. And given that, if you've got little ears in the vicinity of the radio, you might want to uh, divert their attention with something else for a few minutes. Um, Annie wrote a book about it all, Monster, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. Annie, you're very welcome to the show and thanks a million for taking the time to have a chat. Can you bring us back to 1991? And I'm conscious there'll be people listening to this who who might not have watched the series on Netflix. They might not know anything beyond the headline that I mentioned. Um, the the kind of the 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 the, the strapline, the one sentence description of Jeffrey Dahmer. What, what was your experience of 1991 of when this story broke? Well, thanks so much for having me on, Kieran. I'll, I'll tell you, my experience was very much like. The experience might be of anybody in our audience who is saying, you know, well, I don't know anything about this case. I didn't know anything about serial killers either because I lived in a very quiet Midwestern town in the United States. Uh, We are about uh, 90 uh, 90, uh, miles north of Chicago. Uh, and, And it was one of those cities where nothing ever happens. So as a young police reporter, I was, uh, I always covered the police beat. I always thought that was the best beat in the newsroom. Uh, I got a tip from a, a source of mine that said you need to come to 25th and Kilbourne. Uh, it looks like there is a guy who has been saving body parts in his apartment. And that's all I knew. That's all they said. And they said, you know, they said, you know, Ralph Mueller, who was one of the police officers I knew, he said, Ralph opened up the refrigerator and there was a, a head in there. And I thought, you know, you always assume, first of all, that somebody is having bit of fun with you because Mm. this just sounds too crazy to be true. Uh, But one of the things we've learned about serial murder is that they operate so quietly and they blend so well that there typically isn't a a warning that they are out there operating. So when I got to the scene, uh, I started talking to a couple of the neighbors that were standing outside. Kieran, it was a very strange crime scene. It was so incredibly quiet. You know, Mm. crime scenes, when people watch them or see them on the news and there are always people yelling in the background or talking. This was so quiet. I've, I've just never experienced anything like it. And I think it's because everyone who was there, from the police to the spectators to the residents who had to be evacuated from the building, just could not wrap their brain around what actually had been happening inside all that time. And I understand because if this was kind of a work of fiction, uh, you were the the first uh, cop on the scene. You can imagine how it would be shot. The door would kind of creak open and they would be greeted by this scene of utter terror and gruesomeness. It was nothing like that, I understand, in the apartment. It wasn't. It wasn't. I, I was able to get upstairs and to see into the apartment and, and that's an important piece because there were a lot of criticisms that, that people had of uh, two police officers who had had contact with Jeffrey Dahmer months before he was arrested. 
and returned one of Dahmer's victims uh, tragically back to him uh, because what they saw is what I saw when I looked in that apartment, which was a, a, a non-remarkable, unremarkable apartment. Uh, it was, uh, it, it, it smelled, there was a, t- a, a nasty smell, but we're talking about a neighborhood that is, you know, that is it, where it's not unusual for there to be uh, people living in challenged circumstances, including uh, perhaps using the, you know, the stairwells and the, and the elevators, uh, uh, you know, alternatively with the toilets. I mean, mm. it, it, so it's not, it's not that strange. It was a chemical smell. It was not, uh, you know, oh my goodness, we know exactly what this is. Uh, but I can tell you that what was, was happening was that the officers who were already in the apartment that night were starting to discover and starting to peel back the layers of, of the life of Jeffrey Dahmer and the crimes of Jeffrey Dahmer. They, they were looking at Polaroids that, that Dahmer had taken, uh, photographs of his victims, both before, uh, during, and after their, their deaths. Uh, you know, it, this is a, you know, we are a major city in, in Wisconsin, um, in the Midwest. We're 600,000 people. So it's not a tiny police department mm. uh, that doesn't see a lot of different crimes. But these, these officers themselves were shaken by what they were seeing, to say nothing of those of us in the press corps that started to cover it. And then, of course, the community at large when they started hearing the story. But no, there was no torture chamber that you walked into and said, oh, my God, look at this. Uh, it was much more uh, concealed than that which is exactly why serial killers go so long without mm. getting caught. Uh, for, again, for, for people who don't know the story in great detail, maybe you could uh, describe to us Jeffrey Dahmer's M.O., as they say. I mean, how sure. did he go about his crimes? Well, Jeffrey Dahmer didn't kidnap anybody off the street. He didn't, uh, uh, he, he didn't uh, you know, drive around in a van and, and pull people off the street and take them to his apartment. Jeffrey Dahmer preyed on uh, the gay community for the most part here in the city of Milwaukee. He would go to the to the gay bars. He would strike up conversations, and he was very purposeful about who he talked with. He talked with people who he thought uh, would not be missed by their families, either because they were um, either leading at risk lives in in some way, or because their families knew nothing about a, you know their 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 other life as the gay person living in the nineties in the city of Milwaukee. So that's how he identified uh, these men in these gay bars. And was it simply then a case of he, he brought them home, his, his crimes occurred, that was it? What happened then? Yeah, he, Dahmer was so, was very, he was charming, but he was not like, you know, Ted Bundy or, or you know, one of the other, some of the other uh, killers that have been portrayed in a more romanticized way. He was just very regular, unassuming, quiet, good looking, and he's a white male. And there was a lot of criticism because one of the things that Dahmer uh, was attracted to was he was attracted to men who were black or Hispanic. And it's not that he hated those people. That's who he was attracted to. And this became a big part of the story when we discovered that so many of his victims were either or were minorities uh, at least here in the United States, uh, people decided to use that as a reason that maybe the crimes were not detected. And that certainly is not 
uh, is not accurate by any means. But Dahmer invited these, these men back to his apartment. Many of them, he would say he would pay them to come back to his apartment uh, to take maybe some naked photographs or just to come back to his apartment with him for drink. And the drink that he would serve them was a, was a deadly cocktail. It was a cocktail with uh, sedatives in it so that he would uh, essentially drug these men first uh, and, then, uh, and then he would, uh, he would kill them. Jeffrey Dahmer said in his confession that what he wanted is he wanted these men to stay with him. His, his, his goal was not to kill. His goal was to try to get these men to stay with him uh, in this kind of this drugged, altered state, uh, but not be in a position to be able to ask him for anything or ask him, you know, ask anything of him. And what happened is he tried many, many methods some just really too gruesome to, to, to mention, you know, here on, on the program uh, to try and get these people into a state where they were still alive, but they were almost kind of a zombie uh, a, a character. And, and that's what he was, was trying to do. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer killed 17 men and boys over the period of 1978 through 1991. And the... I, I think that the, the collective response to hearing about this crime was, oh my, well, that could never happen here. I imagine mm-hmm. you have many people in your audience who are listening and saying, oh my goodness, well, of course, you know, in, in the U.S. or in, you know, in, in yeah. the Midwest or, or wherever. But that's the thing about serial murder is they exist among us and we don't always know until their crimes are discovered. I understand, Anna, you spoke to him once, is that right? Yes, mm-hmm. I did. I spoke to Dahmer. Uh, I, I met him when he was in court. Uh, you have to remember 1991, is a, it, it doesn't seem like a long time ago, but in terms of technology and journalism, it really was. There were no cell phones. Uh, computers were still sort of a, 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 you know, kind of a crude thing. They weren't uh, what they are today, certainly. And, uh, and I was able to, as part of the, the press pool one day, uh, go back into the judge's chambers. And while going back to the chambers, uh, Jerry Boyle, Dahmer's attorney, introduced me to, to Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, I then had a, an opportunity to speak with him when he called me. Uh, after my book came out in 1991, excuse me, in 92, uh, he was very upset he was upset because your life isn't strange enough until, you know, a serial killer is <laughs> yeah. mad at you. Um, but uh, he was very upset because, and this is what makes him so strange, is that he was very protective about his mother and his father. And in my research, in my interviews with psychiatrists, in my interviews with people who treated him and knew him and interacted with him, they all said the same thing, that he there really were some elements in his childhood that perhaps contributed to making him the person that he became. And he did not like that at all. For someone that did the most atrocious things to 17 people's you know, loved ones, uh, he was very defensive about his parents. Mm. So he was smart, right? He knew I was going to be doing interviews like this way back then. And he knew that someone would probably say to me, have you ever spoken with them? And I would say, well, yes, I did. He told me that no one is responsible for what he did except him. 
and not to blame his parents. So he was clever enough to know that if he called me and told me that, that I would obviously share that. Yeah. Uh, but the idea of, of, of a, such a cold-blooded killer being worried about mom and dad is, is just kind of a, that's another strange part of this thing. It shows that, you know, does that mean that there was some kind of soul in there? It's called Conversations with the Killer, the new Netflix show. Uh, already people will be watching what is now, I guess, the old Netflix show. And if you want more detail, Annie's book is called Monster, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. Annie E. Schwartz, thanks a million for joining us here on the show. We'll get the news headlines now. Here's Andrew. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.